You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Lightning Dogs, the official podcast presented by the Nerdist Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdist Show programming is made possible by a comic shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. And with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geek programming, visit nerdishow.com. Lightning Dogs is conceived as an all-ages property, but these behind-the-scenes conversations are not all-ages. So listen at your own discretion, baby. Woo! Sometimes a great idea is truly like a bolt of lightning. And sometimes, if you're lucky enough, you can capture the exact moment that it strikes. That's what happened for us one fateful night while recording an episode of Nerdy Show. We accidentally launched a concept that derailed the entire show, and in no time, our lives. We couldn't stop talking about our favorite action figures and B-movies while twisting them into strange creatures, weird adventures, and dog puns. Lots of dog puns. This is the story of Lightning Dogs, a journey steeped in the glory of 80s and 90s animation and sci-fi where anthropomorphic dogs tear through the wasteland of a ruined Earth, battling mutants, miscreants, and the evil Glampire. Coming soon to small screens, comic books, and podcasts. Or at least that's the goal. But how do you go from a crazy idea into a fully formed world of conflict and characters? How does a harebrained discussion become an animated series? That's what we're finding out firsthand. We've recorded the entire development of Lightning Dog since day one, from the moment of conception to every world-building session and planning meeting, and the journey is still ongoing. Tune in as we create the world of Lightning Dogs live. Welcome to Lightning Dogs. Hi, I'm Cap. Hey, I'm Doug. And I'm Tony. The first thing we did when we took the Lightning Dogs project behind closed doors was write bios for some of our main characters. But in doing so, we realized just how much we didn't know about the alien world our heroes come from. So we created the history of the Lightning Dogs homeworld, fully intending to come back to our project of writing bios for the rest of the team post-haste. But one thing led to another... We brought in collaborators, got deep into vehicle design and the backstory of other characters, and the next thing we knew, it had been a year. How time flies. It was now January 2016, and we were finally ready to fill in the blanks on Dingo, Nerissa, and Kane. A lot had happened in a year, and the project had grown in new and amazing ways. But outside of Lightning Dogs, there wasn't much to celebrate. 2016 earned itself a reputation as being a terrible year, with a ridiculously high celebrity death toll. And the first major casualty was someone very near and dear to us. At this point, it's been several weeks, but this is actually the first episode of Lightning Dogs we've recorded since David Bowie's death. Yeah, yeah. Or presumed death, anyway. He didn't die, he just went home. So that doesn't really mean anything for Lightning Dogs. But it's weird because we have moved away from Bowie... We've tried in, to, at uh, least. ...in a lot, for particularly for Glampire. You know, he started out, when we started this, as just being David Bowie. 
Well, I mean, yeah, called that, something else. That was yeah. when this was all 100% when it was still a, a joke. joke. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I carried that on for a while in my head. There was a part of me that always felt like we might be able to get David Bowie to do the voice. <laughs> Dude, they couldn't even do it for Venture Brothers, man. I don't they tried. Care. They had the power, and it did not work. We, just, we would record him while he was sleeping. I don't know. Bowie's shocking and spectacular exit is a whole conversation in and of itself. And in fact, it was. We dedicated an entire episode of Nerdy Show to him, where musician and frequent Nerdy Show collaborator Mark with a C and I paid tribute to Bowie and shared the myriad ways he changed our lives and our world for the better. We'll link to that and the eulogy I wrote for him at Consequence of Sound on this episode's page. It felt odd to simply give Bowie's death a nod on our Lightning Dogs recordings, but so much had already been said, so we left it at that and moved on to the long-awaited task at hand. In this episode, we finish the key foundations of our core characters and give a much-needed injection of weird and whimsy back into the wasteland, including the creation of two new characters. Now, for this bio-writing process, you might recall way back to the official podcast, Episode 7, Return to the Wasteland. We randomly divvied up the characters between Doug, Tony, and I. Two lightning dogs each. I wrote Kid, Cap, you wrote Angela, and Doug, you wrote Pierre. So now we're left with me doing Kane. I did Dingo. And I'm working on Arisa. And who wants to go first? I can do Dingo, since yeah, he, he's... Dingo's the leader. Lead the charge, Dingo. All right. So... Starting with Dingo's name. Dingo Redacted. Dingo Redacted. That's a lame last name. <laughs> As it turns out. Age, 28. Lightning ability, the sonic bark. Emits an ear-shattering sonic burst from his mouth. The concussive force it produces can break stone to say nothing of the bones of who it is aimed. Bio. Whatever can be said of Dingo, he's not likely to say it himself. A dog of few words, the truth of Dingo's origin is shrouded in as much mystery as how he came to work in the Wetworks unit answering only to the highest of canine command, which is spelled C-A-Y-N-E-I-N. Okay. <laughs> Rumors surround the relatively young soldier, some more plausible than others. One of the more prevalent stories of his early days point to Dingo being a war orphan, with the same side that destroyed the province of his youth being the one who gave him a flag to fight for. This theory complicates matters, but those who support it feels that it lends a credence to Dingo's sometimes unorthodox methods of following orders, a less supported dingo origin has him riding along in a semi-truck with a man named Stacy Keach. It is barely worth mentioning, <laughs> save that those who support it won't stop talking about it. <laughs> Anytime anybody can work in a reference to road games, I am thrilled. I, over my head, completely. <laughs> it's the greatest film you've never seen, Doug. I wrote that specifically for Cap. <laughs> Perhaps one of the reasons so little is known of Dingo's past is that there are few who have served with him on his sorties that are still around to tell it. His missions have never been the most survivable, and his ability to cheat death is not one that's passed down along the chain of command. The decorated hero Angela, a furry tank in and of herself, is the only soldier to have gone on more than one sortie with Dingo and retained use of both life and limb. So as to why he's been selected for this mission to the home planet, and as its leader no less, is a mystery. Greatest of all, perhaps, to Dingo himself. Though if he's curious as to the Alpha's logic, he's not talking. That's interesting. You're proposing the idea that Dingo is shrouded in mystery, which is something we've never really discussed before. Yet, oddly, it fits in with some of the archetypes we were talking about. Dingo was somebody I struggled trying to figure out what kind of a story I could give to Dingo that would live up to everything we've pinned on him to do. We know he's insecure. We know that he hasn't really led anything like this. And a big part of his arc throughout the series is going to be him coming into his own. As a leader, especially. As a leader. And... 
as I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, what's something that I could give to him that wouldn't be too cliche, that wouldn't be too uh, on the nose? And it just, it struck me that maybe we don't know. Yeah. It's much more interesting to know very little of Dingo, save rumors that have been told about him, to have him be this sort of enigma. Kind of like Picard at first. A little bit. And it also fit in with the archetype of a Dingo, which is an animal that doesn't speak. Yeah. No, I dig it. Dingo's hard. Dingo's been hard for yeah. all of us. So. But, but hey, you know, we've also been talking about a huge influence being Corbin Dallas. I don't know anything about Corbin Dallas. No. You, you know? don't even know what the fuck he did, really. Yeah. Except he is, he's a really strong negotiator. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a pretty poor driver, from what I understand. <laughs> but yeah, other than that... You really he, want to put Dingo behind the wheel of the lightning rod and just... Uh, no, no. But other than that, we don't know anything about his history. I mean, we know he's, he was in the army. Yeah, and he's, and and he's I no, like the, no longer in the army. The only other thing that I really latched onto was the idea that he is a war orphan. That whatever province that he grew up in was raised in the right. War of the Alphas, but the side that he was living in, let's say the idea was that it's the side of the freedom fighters who were the ones to destroy this town through accident, and whereas the kingdom that he was loyal to at the time paid him no mind and was willing to see and watch him die, these freedom fighters came along and took him in. They recognized that you can't just leave someone on the battlefield. So they took him in, and they gave him, as I wrote, a flag to fight for. So So you think he was working for the bad side at first? He wasn't really working for. Or, like, forced to work for? Or So what do you think... Because, as you pointed out, Doug, we haven't stipulated how long this war went on. Correct. So I kind of picture it as going on for at least, like, six to ten years. Yeah, that's what we were, the numbers we were kicking around. So yeah, the it, idea it's challenging figuring that out. We, we know so much about the war now that we didn't know when we first started this part of the project, these character profiles. But there's still a lot of it we don't. Yeah, know. We, we never pinned down an exact and we duration. Really, we don't need to, really. All we know is that it took place over an interminable amount of time. So the idea is that he would have been conscripted in early, that he would have lost his parents at an age where he wasn't old enough to serve, but still young enough to know what was going on. Like 13, 14. So within. So he conscripted into the army at a young-ish age. Or sort even just like, conscripted over to that side. He, yeah. He was and taken care of and then decided that, you know what, these guys left me to die. Fuck them. Doesn't believe in the cause even, really? No, not really. Because he's seen the, the atrocities on both sides. He's just throwing his lot in with the people who gave a shit about him. Yeah. What if he was the equivalent of an African child soldier? I think that's a little bit too far for him. Yeah. I think that to put him in that position, that impossible position, first and foremost, I don't feel comfortable writing as a part of his character, as a part of his history, just because it's an atrocity that I'll never completely be able to wrap my head around. Uh Whereas the idea of somebody who's been left behind by it, leading to him feeling isolated, leading to him not necessarily trusting anybody, but again, being able to trust these guys more. I see Dingo as kind of living in shades of not trust, but how much he can trust. It would be, you know, this is something we've never talked about before. But it would be interesting if Dingo was a defector from the bad alpha. It's interesting, but I don't think that they would ever trust a defector to, to do this, this project. But True. somebody who was... No matter how decorated they were. And again, I, I don't see it as him being loyal to it. No more so than a kid who knows nothing else, but... It's like you're born in Maryland and you consider yourself a Marylander your entire life and you're loyal to Maryland because you haven't been anywhere else. So he was loyal to the crown of the established alpha simply because that's all he ever knew. Mm -hmm. Then the war came to him. Right. And he made his choice. To sound he's on the wrong side. 
not even that he found he's on the wrong side, but that, again, the side that he thought he belonged to left him for dead. There was no relief coming. There was no rescue. They didn't care about the citizens. They cared about the Alpha and winning. Him joining this other side is more like someone joining the French Foreign Legion, where it's like, even if I was abandoned somewhere, like if you were fighting World War I somewhere, mm-hmm. but you weren't French, and your team pulled back, you were stuck in a the hole somewhere, and then the French Foreign Legion just happens to come by a week later and pick you up, you can, you know, you sign up with them. Something like that. And he does buy into the ideals a little bit, simply because as I was getting at, you know, the pre-alpha society cared about one person, the alpha. Mm-hmm. We all die for the sake of the alpha. Mm-hmm. This new side is the one pitching the idea that, no, we're all important. Right. We're right. all alphas in our own right. So he gets in with that. And again, it ties into this idea that he'll get the job done. But because these are the same people who, who fucked up his whole world, he's like, you know what, I'm gonna do it on my own terms. And if you don't want me anymore... Is what we're, what we're talking about here boiling down to he's good because he was raised by missionaries, kind of. Because we have to make sure that Dingo has a certain presence that makes him, no matter how much of a loner he is, that infa- people follow him. infallibly good and, like, and unquestionable in his dedication to the cause. That's, I think, the biggest struggle with putting him behind enemy lines as an origin point. His dedication to the cause comes from the fact that this team saved him, that the revolution took what would have been just another casualty and gave him life. He's behind enemy lines insofar as that's where he was living when the lines were drawn. He didn't choose to be on that side. He chose. Sure, and he was just a kid, right? Yeah. So. He chose to fight for the revolution. I'm trying to think of what situation can you go through that would make you want to be the loner? Not, and I don't want to say jaded, but definitely someone who's seen both sides. Obviously, this conversation we've had is evidence of my struggle. Oh, yeah. No, I completely sympathize. Like, I just, it's, I'm just trying to think out loud now. It's the only situation that I could really wrap my head around. And the idea of keeping it as not really knowing the truth gives us the opportunity for the character to grow, still have a solid starting point, and just kind of move from there. I definitely think his backstory should be mysterious to the audience and to the other lightning dogs as far as the start of the show is concerned. And then as the show progresses, we can figure out what are the actual details like he'll yeah. finally reveal other other parts yeah, as, as it comes up moments with his parents moments with the guy who saved him yeah pull may- him out of the rubble maybe all of these stories even if they conflict can be like the rumors because we you said like rumors abound of like you know mm-hmm. like all this stuff. no and that's that's exactly why yeah. i put that line in there so I, that yeah. i think it's an interesting thing to have is like everybody has a different story about who dingo is and what he's done yeah mm-hmm. uh, the only person who knows for sure is Dingo, and to a lesser extent, Angela. Angela knows him better than anybody else, because she's gone on as written she, more yeah, than one story. She doesn't know how he got started in the war. Not know? necessarily, she, no. she, she, When well, she met him, he was already pretty much Dingo. In my earlier version, which we've never contradicted yet, she met Dingo when he was actually pretty green as far as being like officially in the military, and he was the sole survivor of a team, and he kind of blamed himself for it. And Angela sort of pulled him out of that, and simultaneously they worked together, thereby her becoming... The only person he was ever in a situation with where he decided, I'm going to accept you and I'm going to trust you. Because she proved that, for one, she pulled him out of a funk. And for two, she survived. And he trusts her implicitly. Yeah. And we don't even have to establish exactly what happened there. It's one of the beauties of these being military characters. Because there are things that the public at large won't know. And a lot of people won't know and it's the idea of him being kind of this like wet works black ops he answers only to the height of people just that kind of a person who starts off as a really talented soldier who just moves on and finds himself almost perfectly groomed for a life spent in shadows 
and for taking lives, but then realizing, I don't really, you know. But as Cap was pointing out, he is intrinsically and ultimately good. He will do things his own way. Which would make the upper alpha team be like, listen, man, you didn't really follow orders. We ordered you to go out there and kill this guy for being whatever. And instead, you let him go. And he's like, well, I was there. I was down on the ground and I made the final call. And if you could, in this side story flashback, you see what actually happened. The guy was a victim of whatever and, you know, like extenuating circumstance. <laughs> or he died saving them somehow, you know, like, so it's like the, the idea that he'll get the mission complete, but like you say, on his own terms. And I've also really latched onto the idea that Dingo was a man of few words. So in that scenario that you just spelled out, his response would be something along the lines of, yes, sir. Well, do you care to explain yourself? No, sir. <laughs> Anything else, sir? How Anything? dare you, sir? <laughs> and that's the other benefit to the idea of kind of sticking with the rumors, is we have this character who has not been proven as a leader who still has that, but can still command a room mm -hmm. because of the curiosity, because of the enigma he's going to pose to the rest of the team. And then you know that he can do it. Yeah. His, his record people know proves he can... what has been shown of his record proves yes, it, yes. but people don't know what that record is. Exactly. So we've still got enough clout with him as a character that you can buy that he's the leader of this team, but he, it ties into that, that struggle that we want him to have of leading and trusting a team. Right. And I think you hit upon an interesting way to handle this, because again, I'm going to reference Picard here, because when we first begin, we don't really know much about Picard's history. And as the, of course, over the course of seven seasons, we know him yeah. very well. But when it begins, he's the boss and he doesn't really speak that much and he's very direct and he's very precise. The problem with other quote unquote leader characters like Leonardo from the Turtles or Lino from Thundercats is like they're a team, but yet they treat each other kind of like equals. It's like, come on, team, let's do it. You know, and it's just yeah. like they're the leader just because they're enthusiastic about kicking the bad guy's ass. If he is the appointed leader mm -hmm. and there's like respect there for the hierarchy, you know, and particularly you'll have Angela there backing him up. Exactly. And like if Kid, a Kid's opinion of Dingo would be, I don't know the guy, and he's kind of quiet, and he's kind of bossy, but he is the leader, but I don't know why I should respect him. He didn't do anything for me, but Angela's like, you shut the fuck up. You know, it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. And she's like, oh, gee, okay, sorry, Angela. But yeah, through the lens of Angela's, the way she talks about him tells you why you need to respect this guy. And mm -hmm. then, of course, as the show goes on, that will ultimately reveal his true backstory and will make that fit whatever seems right at the time. You mentioning Angela kind of being the one who stand up for him a little bit. There's a parallel in Firefly of the Mal and Zoe relationship because they both served in this war. The two of them have each other's I mean, back above I, all. I think about that in comparison to these characters all the time. And I've never seen Firefly, so I'm just taking your words for it. <laughs> but, I mean, that sort of thing where Dingo is our Mal character, where he's going to make decisions that the team doesn't always agree with or believe in, but he's got like, a proven like track Like destroying record. the Farfetch. Like destroying the Farfetch, and he's got somebody who's going to go to a bat for him period. Yeah. And that's an important dynamic to have. I think it's going to be strong for this team in this situation to have that kind of a leader and, and someone who can also be the Corbin Dallas. Like they could go off on his own adventure without any of them and, and it would and still come be back and it would still be strong. It would still be a strong story. So that's Dingo. Okay. Da -da 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 -da. Bark. I guess um, I'll launch into Narisa then because I, have, I ran into similar problems with Narisa. I wanted to have her tied to the war really closely, but in a different way than Dingo. You know, I tell you, it's these audience characters, these people we know that we get that gut feeling yeah. are going to be fan favorites. Yeah, 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 yeah. That you're like, I don't want to make well, this. Yeah, you don't want to fuck it up. You know, you yeah. want to be, you want to, I want to be honest. I want to actually have a point. So I'm going to read you what I wrote. You're going to hear it's going to start really specific and get vaguer the longer I talk. Okay. So here we go. Rank warrant officer, age four, parentheses, 29 in dog years. <laughs> 
Build, average height, athletic. Personality profile. Even-tempered and practical. Follows protocol. Avoids social drama whenever possible. Totally able to step it up and be a leader if the situation calls for it. Narisa was born into a lower-middle-class family with one brother and two sisters. She had a stay-at-home mother, and her father was an engineer. Life was normal and happy until the bombing of Lycos. Parentheses. How old was she? (laughs) How long did the war last? End parentheses. Of her family, only she and her father survived. They were rescued from the wreckage and patched up by other civilians. Once enemy troops started marching in, Narisa and her father found themselves falling in with the underground resistance. Narisa's job in the underground varied from preparing food, first aid, repairing, cleaning, and loading weapons and vehicles. As she grew up, she became a very successful scout and saboteur, occasionally leading small strike teams on enemy targets when she knew the area well enough. Her father stayed close throughout this time, rarely going out into battle since he was considered most useful at keeping operations at HQ running smoothly. Narisa continued to learn from him. She seemed to have a natural talent at understanding engines and machinery. She was known to scrounge the debris-laden city for less than an hour and return with enough parts to fix whatever was broken, be it power generators, computers, weapons, or vehicles. With such a wide variety of knowledge, she was often asked to instruct new resistance members on many subjects. Growing up on a battlefield, she learned the importance of self-discipline, loyalty, and keeping your tail down. The next part, this is, I I have mixed feelings about this. After the war, Narisa struggled to adjust to civilian life. She never found a calling or purpose beyond staying alive and winning the war. So when the army reached out to her because of her role in freeing Lycos, she didn't hesitate to enlist. She was quickly promoted to warrant officer. And then I have the tag here at the bottom of the description of a warrant officer, more specifically, like in a real world situation. Warrant officers command detachments, units, activities, vessels, aircraft, and armored vehicles, as well as lead, coach, train, and council subordinates. However, the warrant officer's primary task as a leader is to serve as a technical expert, providing valuable skills, guidance, and expertise to commanders and organizations in their particular field. Technical warrant officers in the Army are specialized in a single-track technical area, such as intelligence, maintenance, or military police, and provide direct advice and support to commanders. I dig it. I actually do like the idea of her being enlisted as a warrant officer in the mechanical track there, because it essentially just means that she is a mechanic who holds rank. And that she's a mechanic who was basically civilian, but the military recognized, whoa, you were through some shit. You're not just a civilian. Mm-hmm. And we need someone who can handle this. But anyone who's just in the army as a mechanic is an army mechanic. You are a survivor mechanic. Yeah. <laughs> and for, for a mission like this, which you don't realize is a rescue mission into a dangerous area, you seem like a pretty good fit. Boom, you're on the team. And they don't even have to know her that well. Not to mention, it adds a little bit of a dynamic to the pump fake that we've talked about before with the will they, won't they potential love triangle thing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where it's like she and Dinko have very similar tragic pasts where the war took a lot from them. Mm -hmm. My goal is to eventually say we need to be able to look at each character and see how it interacts with other characters. We need to look at Nerissa and see what is her relationship dynamic with every other lightning dog mm-hmm. and vice versa for every other lightning dog like what does narisa have in common what does she relate to with king corso what can they be buddy buddy over even if it's mm-hmm. just one thing how can narisa food. and pierre even <laughs> how can kane corso relate to kid how can king corso relate to pierre like everybody has to relate to somebody on one level even if it's just minute about love of cheeseburgers or love of certain music or they the, say or, a word or, the same way or the hate of something like yeah. they both hate this you know so once we get that together, it's going to really feel like a crew. It's going to really start to feel like a family, especially over time when they get to know each other more mm-hmm. and more. Because when it first starts, 
I'm picturing Narisa barely knows anybody because she's just the Warren officer. Mm-hmm. Nobody she knows She will Kid. have heard of the decorated war hero, Angela. And King Corso is just the scientist who doesn't have that military background, you know? Might have a couple of public But then again, books. we haven't gotten to it yet. Just, I, just you wait, Because Cap, you know what? That's a good segue. Just Cap, please tell us. Tell us, what, right. tell us about Launch King Corso. Launch into Kane Corso. I, you know, when I initially debuted Kane on the show, I ended up accidentally, I had like, whoa, I had more to say about this character that I, was just a, a random idea than I thought. And I was like, well, what more could I contribute? I actually did quite a lot already. And I took what I already wrote and fleshed it out in such a way that I'm really excited with the new additions to Kane Corso. I think he finally, even though I can't, I'm the one who came up with him, he finally makes more sense to me. And I'm just going to point out that just like the last time we did one of these, Cap has written more than either Doug or I. But hey, man, whatever works. <laughs> no, I know. I know. All right. Go ahead. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. <laughs> Name, Kane Corso, age 36, build, average height, thick but not overweight, personality, callous and calculated, rank, civilian, master's expert slash archaeologist, weapon of choice, capable with a pistol or rifle, power set, enhanced hearing, well beyond the average canine extent. History, Kane comes from a middle-class family, devout worshippers of the masters. On Domus, the existence of the Masters is known to be true, but what are they? What was their relationship with dog kind? That's the subject of much debate. Since the beginning of time, Master artifacts were worshipped, and in turn, the Masters. There's a variety of sects that have different interpretations on their agendas and their relationships with dog kind. Cain's upbringing was with a very devout sect that worshipped the Masters as gods, in spite of the commonly accepted modern belief that they were flesh and blood. The Obedient which is the name I've proposed for that, uh, mm-hmm. or perhaps Obedient Ones, and then wrote to myself, can we come up with a better name? The Obedient operate much like Catholicism, with a pantheon of holy figures underneath a single great master. Cain's upbringing was cold, stern, and as Dogkind's understanding of the masters grew, he not only steered away from his upbringing, he rebelled against it in the fullest sense. His anthropological work began early, via exposure to holy relics through his church and eventually via youth ministries, where excavations of possible master sites were not uncommon. Cain became fascinated with discovering the truth of the masters, exposing the realities of them as single-minded beings no better than the average dog. Any colleague or supposed expert, especially theologians, who would question his work or pick a fight only served to further fuel Cain's tenacity. During the Great War, Cain was at the forefront of a war within a war. Discoveries in master tech had always pushed dog science forward, so both sides scrambled for buried discoveries that could give them an advantage. 
Kane quickly became one of the government's highest valued assets, though at times his quest for knowledge and their quest for the bottom line came to blows. For instance, it wasn't unusual for the, quote, good guys to destroy an ancient site if it couldn't be captured, lest it give the enemy a leg up. During the war and afterward, Kane became a key player within what would become the discovery, decoding, and refurbishment of the Farfetch. It was during this time that he met Kidd, as her conscription was key to solving the riddle of the device. They sincerely don't like each other. When he wasn't sent along for the first Farfetch mission, Kane was furious and insulted. The officials who'd worked with him before raised concerns based on his repeated insubordination when he let his personal interests outweigh the mission. By the time the Lightning Dogs mission, he's convinced them that the previous mission failure was due in no small part that their agenda had gotten the better of them and that he wasn't on the team. Personality. Kane is arrogant, but his arrogance is earned. He is brilliant in his field, but he's also the sort of personality that spends so much energy presenting a front that the right blow can cripple them. For instance, even while actively speaking against the masters as deities, Kane struggles with the dog equivalent of Catholic guilt. The masters were flesh, but what was their agenda? Did we mean nothing to them, or did they love us? What was the greater purpose in existence? The obedience representation of a stern master or a loving master were often jumbled. He wants to laugh in the face of the masters, but deep inside, he still longs for their acknowledgement of him and their love. A part of him would feel the greatest relief if the great master was real, if he took Cain's chin in his hand, stroked his head, and told him he was good. He seldom has the thought clearly and would never admit any doubts in his anti-theism. That said, most of the time, people only see smarm and confidence, perhaps rage or sarcasm as he's easily irritated. If he's comfortable, he's charming, though still somewhat sleazy. Cain always looks out for number one, so he's certain turncoat material, though not a true bad guy. He's if Belloc worked for the Allies and had slightly more morals, with the cocky humor and nihilism of Boris from Goldeneye. I'm so glad that you said if Belloc worked for the Allies, because I was going to ask, do you mean an arrogant Indiana Jones? <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is, because, dude, I never even thought of this parallel between Indiana Jones and the Master's Tech. But these holy relics are real. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> like how in Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant is, is real. Is, yeah, it's real. So like from their point of view, their version of the Ark of the Covenant, that laser weapon is magic. But he's just like, no, it's not magic. It's science. But uh, but I'm going to go into the dig site and, and pull it out. And we got to, oh, the bad guys are coming. We can't let it fall into the wrong hands. Did he lead a life of Indiana Jones-ish adventure? Or was he more of the lab rat who I, they would bring it to him and he would decipher it? No, and you know what's funny is right before we went to Heroes Con, I wound up doodling a series of Kane Corso drawings and I really latched on to the idea of him being an asshole Indiana Jones to the point where I was like drawing him catching the trip dart. wire. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dude, you know what? I think that's the right direction. And obviously I'm a fan of Indiana Jones Well, yeah, regardless. But that adds a whole other dimension to that character that I didn't even think about. And, and that little, that opening, that spiritual yeah, that yeah. feeling in your brain right now, that's what I had as I was doing yeah. those doodles. Oh, no, that's great. Credit where it's due, Tony actually made a Belloc comparison way, way back in an earlier episode, but none of us remembered it, not even Tony. There was one other thing, Cap, in your bio that I thought was really interesting, because we've already, we've established that the majority of the team, save maybe Dingo, didn't realize that they're a second team. Right. Kane does. Yeah. That's new. We didn't I know, really know I know, that but I really like the idea that he knows, and he ain't telling nobody. Even if he doesn't know for a fact, he strongly suspects, no. because he's that smart. He knows when they're asking for information, like, so if the Masters had a home world, what would you think it would look like, Dr. Corso? Why do you ask? And it's like... <laughs> but I want him to know. 
because right. it ties into his duplicitous nature and it kind of gives an in for kid to be on this mission too if they're right. going to have their top consultant they're going to have the other person who was integral to getting the farfetch working in the first place she might not know because they i picture them essentially taking why would her they tell out of, her yeah. well they're taking her out of a hole in the ground to work in it and then putting her back in a hole in the ground so she doesn't know anything more than they tell her but kane kane is this guy who's too intelligent for He's his the own expert fucking good so he knows Dingo knows, but Dingo doesn't know that Kane knows. Kane just shows up. Would Dingo know that their mission is to rescue diamond dogs, or would they simply tell Dingo, hey, if you see other dogs out there, don't trust them? Like, well, like, they like, don't, like, I don't like even a warning. They, I don't even know if they necessarily know that there are other dogs. They would just tell him that they lost contact with a previous team, and that would be it. Maybe that's what Dingo and Kane have in common as their common ground. Might be, but again, Dingo doesn't know that Kane knows. That's true too, yeah. And as we've established there, he plays a lot of cards close. He's hot-tempered. He doesn't tell anybody anything. Like doesn't he, anybody he doesn't tell him his nothing. own power or anything. <laughs> doesn't tell him nothing. Because it's so, you know, this yeah. idea that he knows they are the second team. He knows to be on the lookout for these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Gives him a position of power. You know, I'm not sure if we can get away with Dingo not knowing that he knows, because he would certainly be briefed on the fact that Kane knows about that. Or would he? Because they might want to disguise well, I mean, Kane's early involvement. Unless nobody knows that Kane knows. I mean, the more we develop it, the more silly it seems that they don't know the Diamond Dogs are out there. Then you, you know? know what? Dingo should know. If anybody, Dingo should know a team went missing. Yeah. I think Kane maybe doesn't know that the team went missing, but when he sees the Diamond Dogs... Kane pieces it together and calls Dingo out on it and is like, did you know this? Did you? He says, there was another team, wasn't there? They're the other team. And Dingo's like, okay, it's need to know basis, but yeah. You know, like, like, and that's a big point of contention among everybody. Or like, even just, why didn't you tell us it was need to know? Yeah. And that's, and that, that's, that speaks to Dingo's, I don't want to say poor leadership, but lack of leadership experience. His lack of trust. Lack, there you go. Lack of trust. And for Kane calling out the bullshit when he sees it and is like, you straight up lied to us. And like, first of all, you blow up the Farfetch. You never consulted us. Now we're trapped in a wasteland. You don't say shit. Now these diamond dogs are after us. Our own men are after us and they're brainwashed and they're super powered. And you get superpowers. Everyone gets these superpowers, except for me. And now you're pulling this shit. What else don't we know, Dingo? I don't think you should be in charge. I think it should be the guy with the brains. I think it should be the guy with the compassion. I think it should be the guy who's speaking. You know, I think you should stop talking. Yeah, it was exactly. need to know. Yeah. You didn't. Exactly. It was my call. That's a great That's a, that's a good point. scene, yeah. I'm really starting to get a feel for Dingo's voice right now. I'm really kind of digging this idea that he doesn't say sentences that are more than like five words at a time. I'm not sure how long we can perpetuate that. I, I mean, think it won't well, last forever. Again, I think Tony's right, because at first he needs to kind of be that standoff guy. Right. He yeah. needs to I mean, be that well, guy. He's, that, yes. he's never going to say a lot. He's not going to be the quippy one. He's I mean, not going to be... When, he will grow into that. When, as, when, when Ruby Rod is grilling Corbin Dallas... He says a word, but because he doesn't want to be there, you know, yeah. that's all. No, I mean, it's not to say that Dingo won't open up, but his default mode of communication is saying as much as possible in as few words. When he's in the acting official capacity of the leader of the group, he just says what needs to be said and then it's done. But if he's talking to Narisa or if he's talking to Kid and it's like on the down low and it's just him dropping and he's like, look, I'm going to take off the captain hat for a second. Not literally, but, you know, metaphorically. That's when we see the Corbin Dallas who's, who's a know, little sweet. Yeah. The, he's got the a Dingo warm. who's a little more like when he's talking to Lilo, he's just like, you got a name? Oh, calm down. You know his name? You know, I got a name? Like, I'm, I'm Corbin Dallas. And she's like, Lilo got that. Blah, blah, blah. Goes, okay, let's go with Lilo. You know, like that kind of that kind of tough guy charisma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I, that can come through. The Bruce Will, the Bruce Willis. Yeah, the Bruce we'll just, Willie. 
that can come through when he's having normal conversations that are not in an official capacity. But whenever it's time to lead and it's time to do whatever, he's a little cold, he's a little distant, but he will grow out of that as they're together for longer, like Katz and Picard. All right, so um, what now? Well, let's talk about mucus. <laughs> oh, yes, mucus, the cat ninja. <laughs> Wait, we, we found this book here. It was part of a, a book swap. It's a 1970s era... What's Cooperative it Method of Natural Birth Control. Right, and it mentions the word mucus a lot. It really struck me. The word mucus is so apropos for an 80s, 90s, particularly early 90s, gross-out kind of character, and wouldn't it be great to have one of those in Lightning Dogs, like in, in Masters of the Universe, there was Stinkor, the yeah. entire Toxic Crusaders line, like Nozone, for example. He was just a, a walking mucus factory. I just, I leaned toward the, the cat aspect because when the pitch for the character came along was the idea that we'd spell his name weird. And the way that I figured we'd do it is like M-E-W, which is a noise that cats make. Mew. Yeah, I think we can do better than a freaky cat, though, because we've kind of got the whole cat thing figured out. That's unlocked. Um, I'm not even thinking about it being freaky. I just think him being like being a doofus. No, we got to make the gross out character, man. So here's my proposal for the alternate spelling. M-U-Q-S-S. Mucus. I see that being confused for like mucus. We can workshop this, but basically (laughs) it's mucus with a Q in there somewhere. And I'm thinking, we don't know, we don't think about it, but gross out character. You buy the package of ooze to, to, go, to go with this character. Yeah, in his action feature, yeah. I think we can milk this. <laughs> Gotta milk that mucus. Milk that mucus? Ew, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it says that on the box. Milk that mucus. <laughs> I've got nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? <laughs> <laughs> I've got nipples, Dingo. Can you milk me? <laughs> Why is Dingo the one having this conversation? <sighs> mucus, mucus, mucus. Mucus is still happening? Because why not? But we've devoted no time or sketches to figuring out what that character looks like, how to milk them, or in general what Mucus's deal is. But, oh, <laughs> the next character, that's a whole different story. This character has become something of an obsession, and we can't wait for you to meet him. We were talking about a kind of goblin character. There was no labyrinth comparison in this. We were just kind of talking about a goblin-y kind of creature, and then it went down a certain rabbit hole that I think that had... um, I I wish we could have recorded the conversation we were in a car. It was extremely spontaneous. We always try to keep it all on the air, but every once in a while, something like this will sneak out, and then it'll grow into something. We were were reviewing... After after like two puns, we usually stop, but for some reason, this one kept going. Basically, we're thinking, okay, so what if it was a little goblin who pops his head out of like a metal... gas canister or something like that. Maybe a propane tank. Someplace unexpected. Yeah, it got to the point where it's got it's got to be something bigger than a propane tank. It's got to be like like a like an oil tanker truck or something like that. Or even an or like an actual oil tanker ship that's stuck in the desert somehow. Like a metal cavern, tiny door, goblin head pops out, barks something really preposterous and closes it and the lightning dog's like, "Whoa, what the fuck was that?" We got to yeah. get in there. He's clearly got something. And I can even picture he's like, it being You can't see it. No. Like no an 18th... Is. At first, it's like he's being very protective. Yeah. Like, this guy's got secrets. They're like, okay, so, like, we were told that someone out here had what we wanted, and... Uh, and this is, the joke is, this is not that guy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> they, they think this is the guy. This is not the guy. This is, one, this is in no way, shape, or form the guy. This is a guy who... Because somehow they either, they either force their way in, or he somehow gets tricked, and he lets them in. But when they want to see what the precious thing that this guy is guarding that he refuses to talk about and refuses to let them see because it's so important to him... It's uh, it's a bunch it's, of fucking anime trash. It's it's an, it's just a bunch of weeaboo anime trash. <laughs> you have like literal manga is, pages on the wall or little statuettes, like you know figurines, all, figurines. And, and none of the like quality ones. The ones that are like hips cocked at weird angles. Or the post apocalyptic equivalent of this. Some missing like, pieces, maybe. I, I was thinking like he has volumes of manga. 
and he believes they're holy books because they're man god. The man god. They're the, the history of man. And I, I need to and, point out, dear listeners, so... that that, w- that was a Tony pun that yeah, got that legs was. and kept running. <laughs> I do get good ones, god damn it. He worships them because they're so perfect. Their skin is so smooth. The pale <laughs> beauties. <laughs> the pale beauties. And look, look at how many packs they have in the stomach. Most people have a six. He's got a 16. You cannot look upon her. She's my wife. It's like, did you say waifu? My, my wife. <laughs> well, what, what about this one? Oh, she is my wife as well. It continued and continued to the point where the, we, the otaku goblin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He is going to be marvelous. And it kind of unlocked this whole idea. The wasteland is the labyrinth. But yeah, there's, there's these weird kooky characters out there that, that just you know, pop up that aren't good or evil that just are. Yeah. Well, when this train got rolling, I was like, no, this is like aside from the fact that it's clearly a goblin and that's you know, that's a labyrinth thing. But, you know, we've created a world where we've tried to keep it so open that almost anything could happen in some regards and that it's strangers in a strange place and nothing is what it seems. And I realized, oh, well, you know, what could really help us as far as like further visualizing the world of the wasteland is to really think about it as the same way that the labyrinth existed in that it has so many different pockets. Like there'll be a door inside of a door or a chamber full of hands or just a bunch of weird stuff and it'll all be stuck together in a very organic (laughs) feeling way. Basically, there's a lot of freedom in the idea of thinking about the wasteland like the labyrinth, not like Mad Max, not like Fallout. It ties back to a little bit of that playfulness, kind of the, the gags that it, we got away from know, the more we got toward the the serious life or death struggle. Right, and because it's a science fantasy world, but this puts the fantasy back in the science fantasy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and again, a little bit more of the fun, because you talk about a room full of hands. I just picture, like, kid opening it up and all these hands turning, like, you know, when you're doing hand sock puppets. Right, right. All turning and looking at her. And then she just she goes, oh, closes sorry. the uh, door. Sorry, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> There's no explanation. This, that's it. And that, that, that's it. Just like a, a two-second scene. It would be thoroughly entertaining. Doesn't need any explanation. We don't need to figure out where these hands came from, how they tie in, what Glampire's plan was for them. You don't know that they're hands, but someone through just put socks on all of them, so they all have these <laughs> weird googly-eyed faces turning. It's like, never mind, I'm out of here. Like It's like you don't even know what's under. If it's like uh, vines, living vines, or plants or something. <laughs> no, or whatever. Oh, it's, it's an old woman who's the sock stitcher and she's like they're not decent <laughs> that's, or, another, that's the other goblin uh, collector. Like, you can't like, look at them it's kind of like, like all the corners in Fallout 4 like when you really like wander and it's just some like you know a bathroom stall or if for some reason you wander behind the sewage plant and whatever you all, there'll all be these weird little shrines or, th- or weird vignette, set pieces some sort of thing. with like mostly often teddy bears there's lots of teddy bears usually Weird that they just left those out. Either that or that's where the teddy bears were having their picnic, which is even there's, creepier. There's lots of teddy bear picnics all scattered through Fallout 4, and I just imagine the wasteland of lightning dogs is full of that, and there's also, unlike Fallout, where it's just like you see it and you're like, oh, all right, there's more there. You can, you can have a reaction and an interaction. Because this world is full of life, you yeah. know, in other ways. And in doing that, because a lot of what we've described, a lot of what we have put to concept has been remnants has been echoes has been death and survival this labyrinth angle to it breathes a lot of that kind of like where are they at now how does the world work and it gives us an opportunity to look at the life without having to think of it as what are the lightning dogs going to do to it or how is it going to come to the lightning dogs it's more just if they found a hall of doors that when you open them just had more doors behind them for no apparent reason 
where you had a door, a hallway, that when you walked through one door, it took you to another door in the same hallway, and all of a sudden there's a Scooby-Doo scene that nobody can explain. Well, that is actually too much fantasy, but... but the, <laughs> Just but saying, finding, early far-fetched technology, they come across it. But finding weird things a, like that, that they're just like, what the fuck is this? And they just there's no explanation behind it. Yeah, it's like, just there for the audience to get a kick out of it. It took us a long time to settle on a name, but this character, who we'll affectionately refer to as the Otaku Goblin, quickly became one of our favorite things. You may have already seen an early version of him in one of my sketches from Inktober, where the prompt word for the day was collect. You'll be hearing much more about him and his horde of prized possessions soon, but that's not all. We may have laid a lot of groundwork for Dingo and Narisa this session, but they're far from done. They grow leaps and bounds in the episodes to come. And speaking of things to come, how about a sneak preview of coming attractions? There is a place where legends are born. A world of incredible mystery and adventure. The place is Earth. The time is the distant future. In the desolate wasteland that remains, colossal powers will collide. Brave fighters from another place. Another species? Welcome to the world of Lightning Dogs. An elite compact fighting unit armed with the most sophisticated weapons ever seen on a movie screen. Now, when the theater goes dark, they will exploit their most mysterious powers in 3D. They say lightning doesn't strike twice. They were wrong. That is the intro to our new Patreon-exclusive Lightning Dogs podcast series, Wasteland Drive-In. We've been promising it for a long time, and our timeline has finally caught up to the recordings. In this series, we watch films that pertain to Lightning Dogs in some way. Sometimes they're classics we've been drawing from all along that we want to revisit, and in many cases, they're movies we haven't seen at all, that we strongly suspect we can take influence from. First up is Tony Scott's 1983 film, The Hunger the film in which David Bowie actually plays a vampire. None of us had seen it, and we'd been thrilled at the thought of perhaps witnessing a true glampire in action. That's coming next week, and patrons at $10 or more will get new episodes of Wasteland Drive-In once a month from here on out. If you're curious to see the schedule of what's to come, visit this episode's page, where I've created a graphic in the style of, well, you know, back when you used to have to go to the newspaper to find out when movie times were? Basically that. Wasteland Drive-In is but one of the many perks available if you join us at patreon.com slash lightningdogs. Patrons get early releases, special sneak previews, monthly hangouts, and more. Through your generous funding, you've enabled us to make Lightning Dogs self-sustaining, and with new patrons joining up, we get ever closer to being able to make this a full-time endeavor and be able to conquer goals like paying Greg Weissman, the creator of Gargoyles and co-creator of Young Justice, to review our pitch bible. Tell us how we measure up, and advise us on what comes next. Every dollar counts, so even if you can only chip in a little bit, if you like what we're doing, join the pack. And I believe there is a new recruit. So, uh, Wolf, who are we rolling with? Here's a shout-out to the newest member of the pack, Miserable Rain God. Now, the wolf ain't never been the praying type, but this drought has got to end sometime. So how about it, Miserable Rain God? Can you help a brother out? If you'd like to meet the Lightning Dogs team in person, We'll be at Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 16th through 18th. And in other recent Lightning Dogs news, 
You can hear me on EMX, Earth's Mightiest Podcasts, all X-Men show, talking about not only the latest X-Men books, but all of our favorite combat-ready canines. As for what comes next, well, we hashed out the next steps then and there. I feel good about everything we've done today. Yeah, these biomes are fucking done, which means once we get the main character art done, we can actually put a story battle together. We need to do a little bit of work with the adversaries. Especially uh, Queen Lich, we got to figure out her deal. We could split up some villains right now if you want to for like next time. If we, if we want to do this exercise on some villains. I say let's go for it. Because well, what's the worst case scenario? Like we say, oh, I don't know, I can't figure it out, but then, we are, then we're back at square one here anyway. Well, the only reason that I would say that we return to the villains as committees is one thing that I've noticed across our discussions, particularly in like... Captain Scrap and Queen Lich, we have some wildly different ideas. That is true. So whoever gets that villain is then going to come up with the idea that they think it should go, and it might be completely off base, and then we're right back at square one. So I say we knock our heads together, and we really hash out Queen Lich. Knock that thing out as best as we can. Yeah. And it was decided. Queen Lich was our next big character discussion. But first, we meet up with Max to get deeper into designing the Brutus and Fido and fill out the Lightning Dog's full complement of tactical vehicles on this inhospitable world. We'll be tackling that in two weeks. If you dig our doggy discourse, please rate and review us on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to get new people to discover Lightning Dogs. But hey, if you like doing things the old-fashioned way, and taking it to the streets out in the meat space, we've got kick-ass Lightning Dogs emblem t-shirts at nerdyshow.com store, and on lightningdogs.com, you'll find our street team link where you can download resources to print your own flyers and posters and spread the word to all your favorite counterculture establishments and fire hydrants. Stay vigilant, friends. It's an uphill battle towards animation, but lightning dogs, we never turn tail. Hashtag Hal Noise. <laughs> you crazy kids. Hey, how else he supposed to express it? What do you mean? The how on social media. How else he supposed <laughs> to express it? You can't just write <laughs> you're, like for 12 You're O's. right. It'll be hard for us to uh, to set aside a specific number of O's so that the hashtag will be yeah. effective. Hashtag Hal yeah. Noise. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.